Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to the Health Lab. I am your host, Joel Blant. Today's episode, episode number 10. That's a milestone, double digits. Features Dr. Randy Patterson. What a great guest to have as our double-digit milestone guest. Dr. Patterson is a psychologist based out of the Vancouver area. He has done numerous, numerous media appearances, um, you know, radio, television, um, podcasts like this one, um, where he speaks on you know practical strategies to overcome issues with depression anxiety, lack of confidence, what have you. Uh, in addition to that, he's he's an author. He's published books on assertiveness, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, how to overcome misery and lead more fulfilling lives. So excited to delve deep with Randy and get some practical strategies for taking control of your health and taking control of your overall well-being. Dr. Randy Patterson, thanks so much for joining me in the Health Lab today. Glad to be here. You know, I, I, I want to talk about a few things, okay? I want to talk about your latest book, How to Be Miserable in Your 20s, 40 Strategies to Fail at Adulting. Love the title, by the way. Mm. Um, and we'll get to that in a moment. One thing I do want to start with, though, is the topic of exposure therapy, and the reason I want to start with this is I took a course with you that you put on actually is about four and a half years ago now um, about exposure therapy and using exposure therapy to overcome anxiety disorders. Um, and it, it had a very profound impact on myself, both professionally and personally. And I'll tell you why. Well, one of the reasons is, is that professionally, I started using the tools on an ongoing basis with most of my clients who are suffering from you know, depression, anxiety, trauma, what have you. Um, but personally, I actually, I, I, had, I had had a fear of snorkeling. And yeah. it's, it's interesting because I, uh, I actually spoke about this in a previous episode with another psychologist, Dr. John McDonald. But um, <laughs> I had a fear of snorkeling because I, I have asthma and um, I always had this fear of being submerged underwater and unable to breathe. So I had tried snorkeling a few times and, you know, immediately had this sense of panic that I wasn't able to breathe, even though I actually could with the snorkeling apparatus. Anyways, what happened was I ended up taking that course of yours. I went out and I bought a snorkel, developed my own exposure hierarchy for using the snorkel around the house and using it in the bathtub and using it in the shower. Anyways, long story short, since then I've been, you know, scuba diving many places around the world, snorkeling all over the place. So, you know, thank you for, for the course. It actually taught me quite a bit and, and again, benefited me greatly in my personal life as well. Well, wonderful. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. The, the, uh, the slogan we just keep using around the clinic is exposure works. You know, it's not, uh, it's not that technologically uh, complex and it's not, uh, I mean, it can be involved in the way that it's applied, but essentially if you do it right, or it tends to work. So let's let's talk about that then. So can you can you give just a brief overview about what it is, you know, who it's for, and 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 what the process entails? Right. 
Well, exposure therapy is used most commonly with um, things that we're afraid of. And, and I think every emotion brings with it a kind of action tendency. Depression, you know, like go off to the cave and lick your wounds. Um, happiness, whatever you just did, do more of that. And fear, get away just escape, escape the situation. And so we tend to give in to these tendencies. You know, if I'm afraid of snorkeling, I'm gonna not, I'm not gonna take up, you know, go on that snorkeling trip, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense. Why would I do that? Um, so I'm gonna avoid these things that I tend to be anxious about. And two things, one, I never learned that whatever it was that I'm afraid of actually is not lethal. And second, it's like there's a little observer in my mind uh, watching my behavior and saying, gosh, this guy is spending an awful lot of energy avoiding snorkeling. Snorkeling must be really dangerous. And so it kind of convinces us of the, um, the danger of whatever it is that we're avoiding. So avoidance tends to grow fear is sort of the short message there. And overcoming avoidance tends to overcome fear. And so the idea of exposure therapy is we identify what exactly is it that the person is really afraid of and see if we can uh, bring it down to a dose that they can tolerate. Mm. And the idea is to get into that situation, experience actually some of that fear. It's not about avoiding fear. It's about letting the fear in, but staying there anyway and not avoiding eventually, you know, you're standing on the, let's say the bridge because you're afraid of heights and it's terrifying. And actually if it's terrifying, I probably did a little too much, but if we did, it's a little scary at any rate. And after a while, you just kind of get bored because it's not scary anymore. And now I'm just standing on this stupid bridge, never, not really accomplishing anything. And that boredom is actually to a great extent what we're going for. Uh, it's the way past many, many, many fears is to just get yourself into that situation and allow the anxiety to come and allow the anxiety to go and to learn that whatever it is, it's not that lethal. Obviously, this is only for things that really aren't lethal. Right. So you, you spoke about kind of bringing on that discomfort and the importance of, of doing that, um, being immersed in it or what have you. So why is it important to do it on a gradual basis as opposed to like let's say you're afraid of snakes you know i presume you don't want to throw someone into a pit of snakes right away um what's the point in doing it on, on a step-by-step -step sort of progressive level well in a sense actually there is a technique called flooding where we would toss somebody into a pit <laughs> of snakes hopefully not venomous ones um or put, put, put a person into a situation where there's you know, the maximal exposure, you know, like they're afraid, terrified of dogs. Let's take them to the middle of the dog park and give them pockets full of dog treats and just force them to stay there for hours and hours. And in fact, it turns out that that's quite effective too. It does overwhelm people. It does freak them out, but it, it's quite effective. The problem is nobody's up for it. Right. And at some level, if your fear goes too high, it will override your ability to, um, to prevent yourself from leaving. You know, you'll just mm. say, oh, the heck with it. I know this is good for me, but the heck with it. I can't stand it. Let's get out. I, I need to get out of here. And so the idea is to um, uh, break it down to the point where your will is sufficient to keep you there even though uh, I'm not really liking being around this one little dog, but 
mm, mm, mm. I couldn't force myself to stay here. Oh, it's awful, but I, I, I can make myself do it. Right. And then gradually we can work up from there. Something the that gets, gets boring. <laughs> uh, expose them to the bigger dog. Mm-hmm. Um, so something uncomfortable, but still manageable overall. Yeah. Yeah. It's mo- more of a practical issue, that idea of uh, titrating the dose. But there's an, there is actually one more thing, and that is if people pick something that's too scary, their duration will be limited, you know, so they'll be able to sort of dart into the room and then dart back out again. That doesn't give time for the habituation to occur. We actually have to have extended exposure to most of these things, and we can usually only manage that with uh, mildly stressful situations. Right, for those prolonged durations that are necessary. Yeah. Are there any conditions or say diagnoses where exposure wouldn't be advised? Well, um, certainly there are um, uh, situations that are, in fact are dangerous. That's obvious. Uh, you know, the, the point of fear is that it's adaptive. So if it's being adaptive, then don't, don't, don't overcome it. You know, don't jump out of planes without parachutes and things like that. Um, and there's a tendency, I think, in mental health to find something that works brilliantly well, like have a hammer and suddenly everything looks like a nail. Like, let's, let's use it for everything. Um, and in fact, it, it is pretty well a focus on, on fear. Um, so if a person is um, depressed, we don't necessarily do depression exposures or exposure to um, you know, like let's have all these, you know, incredibly discouraging surroundings for extended periods of time, not necessarily. Exposure to failure is a good thing. We're, we're training a lot of kids, speaking of my book, <laughs> How to Be Miserable in Your 20s, we're tell, uh, uh, training a lot of kids to fear failure by avoiding it. And it's really helpful to get people into situations where they fail at things and realize, oh, okay, well, that was survivable. I was well, not that comfortable, didn't really like it that much, but I lived. So if I fail at this next thing, like this job interview, they don't give me the job, eh, I'll live. You know, mm. so it's, it's, it's broadly applicable with fear, but I'm trying to think of other situations. Uh, I wouldn't use it much beyond that. That's yeah. predominantly where it's focused. I mean, I th- I, that makes sense. And I like what you said there about, <clears throat> you know, experiences of failure and how, you know, quite often, at least, you know, in my personal life, you, you build something up to have, you know, such a weight in your life, like say, like you said, job interview, what have you, a big report, you know, I've taken the stand and given expert testimony and, um, you know, you build that up to be something that's, you know, it's quite nerve wracking, but then once you go through the process, it's actually nowhere near, quite often, nowhere near as bad as you've built it up to be. Reality tends not to be scary, as scary as our imagination. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that does segue well, actually, into your book, your latest book, at least. So let's chat about that again. How to be miserable in your 20s, 40 strategies to fail at adulting. Bit of a snarky, sarcastic title, but applicable, I feel like. Can you talk about, you know, what it is, who it's for, what the strategies are about? Yeah, well, it's based on an exercise from a depression treatment program that I I did many years ago. 
um, where people have been hospitalized and then discharged uh, uh, from inpatient care with uh, serious depression. And uh, I thought, well, if I try to say, oh, cognitive behavior therapy, most wonderful thing ever, that's probably not, that's going to be a bit of a hard sell. So instead I went and, and I said, well, what if, what if for some bizarre reason, who knows what, maybe you win a ton of money, uh, you wanted to feel worse, what would you do? And people could come up with all kinds of ideas and then would begin realizing, well, wait a minute, I'm already doing some of this stuff. You know, I'd stay home, I'd close the curtains, I'd turn down all social um, uh, opportunities, I would eat only junk food and so on. I was like, wait a minute, I'm already doing this. Do I want to be depressed? The answer, of course, is no, but the negative emotion is changing our motivational structure in a way. And it makes us want to do precisely what will make the negative mood state worse. Mm. So let's apply that to people at this transition from dependent adolescence to independent adulthood. And we find that there are all kinds of things that make people anxious and all kinds of um, things that people want to avoid or misconceptions about adulthood that uh, bring them astray. And so what we want to do is identify, well, what are the strategies? Like, let's imagine we, for some bizarre reason, wanted to completely derail adulthood. What are some of the ways that adulthood goes off the rails or early adulthood? And let's identify them. Kind of like if you, you know, if you're walking through a minefield, it's helpful to have little signs saying, oh, there's a mine here. Mm-hmm. So let's go through and find out where all the mines are, as if you wanted to step on them all. But secretly, we know you don't. So can, can you give some examples of, of without getting, going into too much detail about what, say, some of those mines might be? Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, some of them are, are, are things about uh, relationships with, with parents. Um, so feeling that, that uh, parents need to be more supportive of me, which essentially puts the level of control onto them rather than onto me. And part of uh, adulthood is trying to seize your own control over your own life. So waiting for them to do something might not be that, that helpful. Mm. Um, some people feel very resentful of things that have happened to them in their upbringing. And they think, you know, until people... Uh, apologize or take responsibility for their actions, I cannot move on with my life. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, again, this puts control mainly in the hands of the one person you might trust least uh, and who might be least motivated or least likely to actually behave in in a way that you would like. So part of it is is getting trapped in in, in this um, sort of helpless state. Another whole area are, are the, the incredible set of misconceptions people are actively taught about life. For example, people are taught that self-confidence is really important. And so in order to do something new, you need to have self-confidence. Well, then if you ask, well, okay, great. Well, how, how, how does that happen? How do you develop self-confidence? People are often a bit stuck. You know, if you've never been in a swimming pool in your entire life, why would you feel confident that you can swim? That doesn't make any sense. You know, in your case, why would you feel confident that you can uh, go scuba diving if you've never done that before? Right. So what we need to do is possibly gradually expose you to those situations. And then the confidence develops as a result. 
So we, we kind of subtly train young people to see confidence as a prerequisite for action, whereas action is actually the prerequisite for confidence, right? So we get the order reversed. Right. And I liken that, I mean, just to what you said about, well, there you go. I mean, exposure therapy and, you know, those experiences of success in yeah. order to build confidence when engaging in these tasks. Yeah. People think of that, that sort of, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, feeling as something to avoid. Actually, that's the feeling you want. That's the feeling you need to go for because that's the feeling of your life growing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how does that coming back to the book as well is 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 there are are there strategies and I mean there are forty strategies obviously um, um, how, how how does it proceed how is it laid out well there it's written as though with a bit of a wink to it obviously but it's written as a, as though let's say it's your mission to derail your adulthood what are forty ways you can do that and so there are indeed forty small short chapters. Um, talking about different ways that you can derail things, get stuck, remain almost psychologically an adolescent or child, and not move forward with your adulthood. Buried inside each of them is a recommendation about what you could do instead if you actually wanted to go the other way. Uh, <laughs> How to succeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think people are so tired with the, oh, you can do it, you can succeed. You know, self-help tends to be such a bland area. Uh, you know, many, many uh, clients uh, think about self-help books and they think, oh, it's so boring. Well, not as boring as it is for therapists because, you know, in order to recommend a self-help book, we have to read the darn thing too. And so we wind up reading a ton of these things and they are unbelievably dull, or at least, Eventually, once you've read, read a number of them, they're unbelievably dull. And to some extent, I think the earnestness of, of these things can betray a sense of lack of confidence in the person. It's like, we have to really treat you with kid gloves and not have a sense of humor about any of this. Uh, and I think there's a hidden message there, which is you're really fragile. And, and being able to take it with a little bit more more of a sense of humor and, and more, um, a little bit of a sharper edge, I think uh, communicates confidence in the, in the reader. And I, I think, frankly, I think hopefully it makes it somewhat more tempting, uh, more uh, entertaining to read. I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, that speaks to me well. I, uh, I use humor on an ongoing basis in my therapeutic relationships. And I find it to be, you know, one of the greatest tools in developing rapport and, and mm. maintaining rapport and confidence as well, too. Yeah. I mean, you have to know how to do it and, and when to do it. And, and it is easy to um, accidentally offend somebody who is a little bit more sensitive in a certain area than you might have thought that they were. But um, I think humor communicates a, a mutual understanding and a mutual respect as well. Mm -hmm. Did you, did you write this book with a certain, I mean, presumably audience people in their twenties or thirties or what have you in mind, or, and, and was it, is it individuals who are suffering from depression or anxiety or just, just any, any one general population that you wrote this in mind? Well, it's written really with that, that idea of your early adulthood in mind. 
and that transition from dependent adolescence where you're pretty much relying on parents or somebody to take care of you uh, to, gosh, I'm my own self, I'm out there in the world on my own and uh, I'm having to work this out for me. Um, and if you think of that transition and the, the level of difficulty that people have with it as being on a continuum, it, it, it's written a little bit more for people who are having more trouble with it. And people at the far end of that continuum um, are often uh, referred to by terms like in Britain, neat, not in education, uh, employment or training. Okay. Um, in Japan, hikikomori, uh, which is a pattern of uh, withdrawal, extreme social withdrawal. And in North America, we use this kind of offensive term, I think, which is failure to launch. Um, and, and these are uh, some 20-somethings, uh, sometimes 30-somethings, the odd 40-something, is still kind of stuck in mom's basement. Um, anxious, um, socially isolated, underemployed or unemployed, and really unable to move on uh, with their life. Now, the book isn't designed specifically for them because that's, you know, an, an extreme, but I think it, it, it speaks to many of, um, many of them. More broadly, I think all of us find that that's a difficult transition. It's one of the more challenging life transitions, I think, is making your way out in the world for the first time mm -hmm. without your leash. And it's, it seems to be, I mean, I don't know, it's been a while for me, but it seems to be happening later in life now, too, that people are doing that, making that transition. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I just did a, uh, a Q&A series uh, for a website called PsychWire, and, and people ask questions and then you answer them. And, and one of the questions was, maybe isn't part of the problem here that we're really expecting people to be independent, to be employed, to have this, uh, this adulthood in place too young. Uh, shouldn't we not be expecting any of this until the person is 30? Uh, and I, I, I wrote back you know, quite firmly saying, well, no, at no point in history has there been a society that said only at 30 are you capable of, of um, you know, a job and being responsible and you know, waking yourself up rather than having mom wake you up, all of that. Um, I don't think it's that we're uh, putting it off. I think it's, uh, or, or, or imposing it on, on them too quickly. I think it's in a sense that we're not imposing it on, uh, on people early enough. We're not expecting enough of 12 year olds, of 13 year olds, of 14 year olds. And, and we're keeping people quite dependent uh, longer. And then somehow at the age of 20, we expect a magical gong to go off and people are suddenly able to take care of themselves. I don't know why that would be if we're not training them in it pretty you much. Know, from it's, it's so interesting that you say that. And I agree. I mean, I don't have a lot of interactions on a daily basis with people under the age of 18. Um, and the only people who I talk to who are 18 are my clients typically. But so just a little bit of context. Um, my wife is a teacher. Okay, she's in the school school system, and um, there seems to be she just you know reports you know some of her daily if interactions with students, parents, other teachers, mm -hmm. what have you. And you've heard of the term uh, helicopter parent in the past, yeah. have you? Yeah, someone mm -hmm. who kind of like watches over, basically, um, you know, is a helicopter is is you know, 
is the shadow of their child wherever they go, what have you. There's also another term that's new, and it's called lawnmower parent. And I mm-hmm. guess what this is, is a parent who it kind of, you know, blows down all the barriers, um, um, opens all the doors, you know, helps with the assignments, what have you. And basically it just does the work for the child. And there seems to be a lot more prevalence of that in this day and age. So I think it speaks well to what you said about, you know, not equipping kids with those skills at an earlier age. Yeah. I really encourage parents when I get the chance to speak with them to, to think, okay, tell me about the 25 year old that you're hoping your kid will be, you know, what, what are they like? Let's imagine we just voyage into the future. What are they like? What are they, do they know how to cook anything? Can they do laundry? Are they financially responsible? What, you know, what, what, what are we looking at? Okay. And, and what are we doing to get them there? What are the, like, let's not just hope that that's the outcome, right? It's like, it's like uh, looking at, a, at, a, at, a, at an empty lot and saying, well, I hope that, you know, a house manifests itself here. No, 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 you got to build it. So mm-hmm. what, are you, what are you doing to build this? Mm-hmm. How do we actually construct this? And if what we are constructing is a young person who anticipates that, that mom or dad are going to leap in there and do everything for them and clear every barrier, then what we're doing is we're creating an adult who is going to expect the same thing. That's the way that the world is. That's the world in which they've been raised. Regrettably, it's not the world that they're going to be in. Certainly. And I think some of that too is, it seems like, again, you know, speaking from my wife's perspective, at least a bit of a lack of consequence as well in some circumstances. Like, you know, when I went to high school, if you got into a fight or what have you, or you got, you know, caught with, you know, smoking pot or something, you get kicked out of school, you know? Mm -hmm. And I guess now it takes a lot more to actually get kicked out of school. I'm sure they have their reasons behind it. You know, I can't comment on it too much, but it seems that there is less consequence for some of these quite objectively negative actions. Yeah. I mean, you, you want to like watch your use of, you know, really extreme consequences, like let's take this kid's education away for the rest of his life kind of thing. But, um, but some degree of consequence. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you do want, uh, want that because actually in adult life, you know, you don't show up at work for three days. You don't have a job anymore. Right. They don't, they don't want you back. That's the world that we're in, whether we like it or not, that's, that is the world. And uh, so it helps if our training environment is maximally similar to the environment where we're going to use that training. That makes sense. Try and essentially simulate it to the best yeah. that you can in preparedness for adulthood. Yeah. Nobody's trying to make helpless adults, right? They're trying to be nice right? This is my child. This is my, my, the biggest project I will ever have. And then one project that will outlive me. Um, I, I don't want it to go badly. And so I really want to be as helpful as I possibly can be. Most of this is entirely positively uh, motivated. Unfortunately, it can lead in the wrong direction. Do you feel like, I mean, it, it seems like there's you know, I don't have any stats on this or anything, but it seems like there's a notable increase in anxiety and depression in today's world. I saw I saw a Time magazine cover a few months ago. I didn't actually read the article, but the cover said the age of anxiety. 
on it. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that this could be contributing to that at all? Yeah, I think that there is a tendency to, um, like if we, if we were to use the principle from the book and say, well, what if we wanted to create um, a very high rate of anxiety disorders in a culture? Like we don't, but what if we did? What if we wanted to create really anxious adults? How would we go about it? And I think what we would discover is we're, we're doing pretty much what we would do if that was our goal. <laughs> like it's almost as though we have deliberately created that that world. And indeed, it does seem to be true that the prevalence of these, these difficulties is going up. Do you think that do you think that social media has an impact or an influence on that? I think that it does. Um, in that it's a sort of I don't know, nutritionally poor form of social contact. You know, it's it's just barely good enough. It makes you feel like you've socialized, but really you haven't. Um, as well, I think it contributes to uh, a kind of status anxiety where you're always worried about um, how am I measuring up relative to other people? Mm. Uh, one of one interesting phenomenon about that is that when people are posting to social media, often they're posting their high moments. You know, oh, look at this wonderful vacation I'm on. Oh, look at this great thing that I just, oh, I just got this award, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, it tends not to be as much about lousy stuff. And so when you look at your friends' lives, you tend to think, gosh, they, this person's living a pretty good life. And you compare it to your complete life, not your online life, your complete life, right? And your complete life does not measure up to their highlight reel. How, how could it? Yeah. Nor, interestingly, I think, does it measure up to your own? When you look at your own uh, uh, social media posts, you realize that your real life doesn't even measure up to that. So we used to talk about keeping up with the Joneses. Now we can't even keep up with ourselves. The game has changed. <laughs> yeah, it's gotten way worse. I, I, I agree with that. And I, I think in, in some respect too, even aside from the the posting, just the scrolling and and like I feel like it's I feel like social media is the antithesis of mindfulness. It's it's essentially it, I feel like it's taking you away and and trying to take you away from you know here and now what where you actually are in this room. You're you know yeah. For me, I, you know, I like a lot of travel pictures and stuff like that. And I can scroll through Instagram and look at some beautiful beach in Indonesia and then look outside and it's 14 degrees and raining in October in yeah. Vancouver. I think, you know, in a way, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I think potato chips are fine too. But if you're getting a mammoth dose and that's all you're eating, uh, that's probably not so good. And I think that's what we're talking about with social media. It's, it's not that it's inherently evil or anything. It's just that our dose is so high. And I think initially many of us thought, oh, okay, this is going to steal from television. This is going to steal from watching, you know, another, you know, your third viewing of that rerun of Friends or something. I know I'm dating myself by saying that, but, uh, you know, and, and it's like that was wasted time anyway. So big deal. In fact, I think what a lot of social media is doing these days, or, or more broadly internet use, is that it's robbing from 
being out there in real life. There's a, um, an organization called the Nielsen Company. Um, they're the ones that do Nielsen ratings for television. Okay. And they've been doing um, uh, a quarterly cross-platform report saying basically in the United States, which is where they're focused, um, how many minutes or hours a day are people looking at computer plus iPad plus phone plus television? In other words, how many minutes or hours a day are they looking at a screen? And it turns out for the average American citizen, and Canada's probably roughly the same, it's over 10 hours a day. And when you think, wait a minute, but eight hours a day we're sleeping, so we're not looking at screens. So that's, that only leaves five or six hours a day to actually do everything else that we used to do in a full day. And so the major we think of in real life, as being most of life and then a little bit of, of screen time. It's actually the reverse. Most people are on screens most of their waking minutes. That's a, that's a scary statistic. Um, <laughs> I'd imagine it's, it's, do you know when that came out? Because I imagine that it has increased substantially since COVID. Well, it, it probably has. I haven't looked at any of the reports since COVID. Uh, but they, they, they reissued. It's a quarterly report, so they, they do it every quarter. Interesting. Uh, my last one was probably two years ago that I, uh, I looked at. It, does, it, goes, it bounces up and down a little bit, but it's usually between 10 and 11 hours. Wow. And yeah, I mean, I don't know how much telehealth therapy you're doing these days. I know mine mm -hmm. is about 90% right now. So yeah, face-to-face -face interactions have decreased quite a bit for me. So I'm sure yeah. my, my Nielsen rating is through the roof right now. Well, yeah, and but let's not pathologize all screen stuff. I mean, maybe the telehealth stuff we're doing. I would hope it's 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 helpful. The odd um, uh, Netflix show that you like, you know, that can be a positive experience. You know, hanging out and watching that. Um, you know, doing research. Uh, if you're writing a paper, you're probably using a computer. This is not all bad stuff. It's just that real life is getting so squeezed that we may not be learning the skills that we need to manage it. Mm -hmm. And that's valid I, about you know, just the positive experiences versus maybe more detrimental ones. I've had mm -hmm. a few clients over the past few months who are very, and for good reason, very caught up with, with COVID. I mean, how could you not be? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a pandemic and it's, it's mm -hmm. in your face you know, 24 hours a day, essentially. And I, uh, I had them, you know, some of them were on social media, watching YouTube videos, watching, you know, the 10 o'clock news, the six o'clock news, the five o'clock news, just being bombarded with it. And we're just reporting hyper anxiety throughout the yeah. day. And one of the things that I worked on with them is, you know, just let's, let's give yourself a few portions throughout the day, a few moments throughout the day, a 10 minute period, say morning, afternoon, evening, to expose yourself to this news, to the media, to what's going on. And then after that, you stop. Um, because, you know, the, the, the toll is, is, is probably not going to change that much between 9am and, and 2pm. Um, so are you actually doing yourself any more favors by constant exposure. And I mean, you know, this is all anecdotal evidence, but there were positive reports of slightly decreased anxiety with less exposure to the constant bombardments of social media and media in general. Yeah. I mean, our emotions are reactive to the world and to what we're paying attention to. If, for example, you only pay attention to 
the lousy stuff in your own life, then your emotional life will be as though it was pretty much all lousy. Um, if all you're paying attention to is the news and all the news is paying attention to is what's the worst stuff going on in the world right now, then that's really gonna dictate your emotional life. At some point, uh, the news can become almost a compulsive behavior, checking the news. And, and so one of the things you might encourage or I encourage people to think of is, okay, I'm gonna look at the news. And at the end, I'm gonna ask myself, what did that tell me that I did not know before and that is now going to help my life? And if the answer is, well, nothing, it's just a repetition of what this morning's news was, uh, then what is the motivation for me doing that other than uh, you know, this sort of compulsive viewing? And maybe I need to put some artificial boundaries around this. You know, maybe I'm just going to feel that temptation. Oh, it's the news. Oh, let's do, oh, I got two minutes before. Let's check the news. Uh, that's going, that temptation is going to be there. How can I erect an artificial boundary around that and just not do it? Remind myself, no, no, no. I get two a day. That's it. I get two a day. I've, I've done my two, so I don't get to look again until tomorrow. Too bad. Shucks. <laughs> yep. Um, have you experienced similar with some of your clients as well? Yes, um, it, it's one of the challenging things that I'm working on with people is how do we up your real life exposure? And, and by exposure, I don't mean exposure therapy. I mean, get outside, go do things, hang out, be able to turn off the screens for at least a little bit, knowing that you know some of the screen stuff, very positive, lovely, lovely, have to have it. But uh, what are the avenues or the doorways that are still open? If concerts, that door is closed right now, fine. What are the doors that are open and how can you make the most of those? I like that. And I, it's, you know, it speaks to me well as an occupational therapist, because I mean, you know, occupational, it's, you know, think of what do you do to occupy yourself? What are you doing to occupy yourself? What are the activities and the tasks that you're doing throughout the day? And, you know, when just personally, when I am idle, when I am sitting on the couch and nothing's going on and I'm just sitting there, you know, my knee hurts, my shoulder hurts. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about this report I have to write the next day. Um, what have you, a fight I got into with, you know, my mother or my wife or, or you know, anything, bad stuff. But yeah. when I'm busy, when I'm doing, when I am occupied, all of a sudden, a lot of those things don't seem to be as bad. You know, my shoulder isn't as, as sore as much. You know, I'm not thinking about, you know, work or, or relationships or what have you. I'm thinking about being on this walk in the woods. I'm thinking about preparing this dinner for myself or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of that is, is, is a kind of mindfulness in a way, is that I'm actually there in my actual life, actually doing something right now. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Thanks for that. Um, we do have a little bit of time left, Randy, and I want to talk about another one of your books actually mm. to do with assertiveness, the assertiveness workbook um, yeah. speaks to me well too. Um, I've been working a lot with my clients on assertive communication over the past couple of years. Can you talk about your book, who it's for and, and just some of the major themes and, and takeaways? Yeah. 
I alluded to that group therapy program that I did for people just out of hospital with depression earlier. And um, really this, this assertiveness program came out of the same thing because people went through the program. We realized, wait a minute, one of the risk factors for depression for a lot of these people seems to be difficulties setting and maintaining good interpersonal boundaries. And so it really emerged out of that group program, but the book is written for everybody. And it, the idea is that in order to have some measure of control over your own life, you have to be able to do this. You have to be able to set boundaries. You have to be able to ask for things when you need them. And you want to be able to communicate clearly and effectively. And it's a standard thing that we get very few lessons in. Like no, no, most people never got a course in this, right? So let's do a course in it. Let's actually train people in how to do assertive communication a little bit better. So how, do, how does assertive communication differ from say aggressive or, or, or passive communication or, or passive aggressive communication? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are, though you've, you've identified the four, four primary styles. And in the, in the book, I talk about it being kind of a stage metaphor. Uh, and by stage, I mean like a theater stage. Uh, with the passive style being everybody else is allowed on stage, you're not. You're basically the audience and the servant to everybody. And if somebody asks you, I want you to do this, you have to say yes, because you couldn't refuse. You couldn't say no. Mm -hmm. If you're aggressive, then you get, you're allowed on stage, but nobody else is. You're like a sumo wrestler bouncing everybody else off the stage as, as much as you can. It's your way or the highway. And really what you're doing in aggression is you're, um, you're controlling other people's behavior, or at least you're trying. More often than not, you're failing, but that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to control other people's behavior. Passive aggression is much the same, except you're trying to do it with deniability. Right. I'm, I'm going to be aggressive towards you, but in a, in a way, sort of a roundabout way so that I can't be uh, confronted with it. And, and assertiveness, you know, when, I, when that book first came out, people were asking me, you know, because you do these five minute radio spots between the weather and the, and the traffic, you know, right. and people are asking, what's the main point of your book? Well, it's like 200 pages of tips. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it is. And then I realized what there is a main point to the book. And it is that assertiveness is about not trying to control other people. People think assertiveness is about how to control other people. It's not. It's about how to give up on controlling other people and controlling yourself instead. Because if you're in a difficult relationship with somebody else, it's a dance and you are dancing some of the steps. So how do we change what you do? Forget what they do. What, do, what are you doing that may be perpetuating this pattern? What can you accomplish. And that's much less threatening than trying to control what somebody else does, because ultimately you can't control what somebody else does. So it's always going to feel kind of anxiety provoking. Right. So no, that's a, that's a good interpretation. Um, it, more so, yeah, not controlling somebody else, but controlling how you feel about it. Is that right? Well, controlling how you feel about it, to some extent, although I think emotions are hard to control sometimes, um, but more controlling what it is that you do. The classic example that I've given over and over and over again, I'll give again, is a woman who is in this group 
uh, who had a kid his, in his teens and he just learned to drive the car. And so he was driving her car, but he was always bringing it back, back without any gas in it. She was starting to get into this nagging oppositional relationship with him because, oh my God, she'd, she'd raised this irresponsible young man who's oh so awful and he, she can't make him fill up the, the gas tank. And the group members, really to their credit, pointed to who the problem really was. And the problem was her. Why was it her? Uh, she was kind of, oh, what do you mean? Uh, well, uh, it was her because uh, they're her keys. They're her keys. She's the one handing them over. That's her part in the dance. He violates the rule. She hands the keys over anyway. That's her part of the dance. So the idea was to change the rule where she said, you know what? I'm not going to nag you. I'm not going to nag you. You know, you can bring the car back with gas, without gas, whatever, it's up to you. Uh, if you bring it back without gas, then two weeks later, you'll be able to borrow the car again, but it will be two weeks. And if you bring it back uh, with gas, then you'll get, be able to borrow it the next time I don't need it. You know, totally up to you, right? I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to nag, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so uh, he, he brought it back. Of course, car had no gas in it because she had spent 17 years training him that when mom says something, it doesn't mean anything, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, she's just going to violate her own rules. Um, she stuck to her guns the second time. He brings back with gas, and it carries on like that. So rather than nagging, this sort of um, wheedling kind of aggressive way, she gave up on that. She just said, "I'm going to control myself instead." And by changing what she had done, she actually changed the dance, and this changed. You know, her son changed, but he changed in uh, in in response to her change. Uh, so, in assertiveness, one of the tricky bits is figuring out what am I doing in this pattern, and how do I change it? Wow! In a way that might lead to a positive direction. So, just a, a great way to strengthen relationships or or address concerns with relationships overall. And you know what, that, that I'm going to tie that back to what we were speaking about earlier, just about, um, it, I mean, it, it speaks really well to what we were talking about earlier about consequences um, mm -hmm. for behaviors or, or, you know, consequences for negative behaviors or positive reinforcement for positive behaviors as well. Yeah. 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 Very much. If, if um, Randy, if anyone wants more information or resources on assertiveness, um, your book, your, your book on assertiveness, your latest book, um, How to Be Miserable in Your 20s, where can they go? Well, I have a website, randypatterson.com, and Patterson is with one T, so you have to get that in there. Um, I also do a weekly um, YouTube uh, video, and the channel is called How to Be Miserable. Now, it's got one of those really complicated addresses, so the best thing to do is just go to YouTube and then look in the search function, type in How to Be Miserable, you'll find it. And there's, you know, uh, a, a, a video every week, five to 10 minutes on some psychological principle, many of which are involved with the how to be miserable idea or the assertiveness stuff. For therapists, I also have an online course site called psychologysalon.teachable.com. And there are a variety of courses on uh, what I think of as therapy fundamentals how to do psychotherapy and what are the bits of that. Uh, so those are three resources. 
That's great. So um, I will put those in the show notes, randypatterson1t.com. Um, and in the YouTube, how to, how to be miserable. And then of course, psychology salon.teachable.com. Thank you so much, Randy, for joining me today. Well, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Great. And you have a nice day. Thank you. You too. Randy Patterson, folks, great to talk to him about, well, the plight of modern society, but not only the plight of modern society, but how to address that plight, what we can do as individuals to overcome some of these issues with anxiety and depression that seem to be plaguing many of us in today's modern era. So again, look out for the show notes or look in the show notes, sorry, for links to, you know, both Randy's website and his publications and his YouTube videos as well. And join us in two weeks time. I will be sitting down with Matt McEachran. Matt is a very He's an interesting, interesting figure. He's a leadership expert. He's been working in the leadership training and coaching and personal development arena for over 25 years. And he is the only individual I know who has run a marathon in Antarctica. So very excited to touch base with Matt and delve into his you know, both his endurance experiences and his coaching and leadership training experiences and how they likely have mutually influenced each other. Until then, stay happy, stay healthy. Have a nice day, folks. Take care.